We're in Exodus chapter 9, and remember we're looking at these, these signs that God performs, these signs and wonders referred to in the text, these plagues. Uh, there's nine plagues before the, the final judgment of the death of the firstborn, and we've seen that there are kind of three sets of God's judgments, and each set contains three different plagues within it. And so this morning we're going to read about the, the first plague of the last set of three plagues. And that begins in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. And in, this, in this, these verses we see things that really are in kind of elements that are in all of the plagues to one degree or another that I think give us a good understanding of what's taking place here. And so if you are able to, if you would please stand with me in honor of God. As we read his word together. Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, sin, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Verse 22 Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I And my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud 
But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning that you are a, a great sovereign God, a king. We are your subjects and we, we rejoice in your sovereignty even though we don't fully understand it. We recognize our, our need to respond and worship to the truths about who you are. We thank you that you're sovereign in the different circumstances that we find ourselves today, whether whatever's going on right now as we're, we're seated in our, in our seats, we're standing, we, we know that whatever we're thinking about, whatever we're struggling with, whatever is, is going on in our lives at this moment, we recognize that we are not here by accident. We recognize that you, a sovereign God who loves us, has brought us to this place. And so this morning, our cry of faith is for you to, to care for us in this moment, to give us joy in you, to cause us to rejoice in you as, as exciting things are happening, to cause us to trust in you as, as we might be hurting. We recognize our need to respond and worship to you in all things. We love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On May... 29th, 1913, Stravinsky's ballet, The Rite of Spring, premiered in Paris, France. The initial performance of the ballet did not go well. Uh, Stravinsky had designed this, this ballet to describe the mythic and pagan origins of Russia, and so he had created these inharmonious sounds to kind of create this, this mood of, of discord, and he proved to be too successful in that, perhaps. As the ballet began there in the theater, within just a few minutes, the people begin to, in the audience, begin to, to boo the performers. And then some of Stravinsky's supporters, who were also there in the audience, begin to argue with those who were booing the performance, and very quickly, at the ballet, a fight broke out. There was a terrible riot, and there was this brawl. The police, before intermission, the police had to be called, and I think some 40 people were escorted out of the theater, arrested, and order was kind of restored by intermission. And then the second half, the same thing took place, and Stravinsky, who was there for the premiere of his ballet, had to flee the theater before the end of the show. And yet, the rite of spring that premiered that night in 1913 in Paris, France, would become known as Stravinsky's masterpiece, his greatest work. But there, at that time, in the moment, the audience did not appreciate his masterpiece. And perhaps it was they didn't quite 
approve of what he was doing. That wasn't what they thought a ballet ought to sound like, or they didn't understand what he was trying to communicate with these discordant sounds. But for whatever reason, the, the audience was not appreciative. Last week, as we began talking about this passage in Exodus that deals with these signs and wonders that God performs in judgment, we talked about the idea of idolatry. And we said, we went to Deuteronomy 4, that also occurs here in the Pentateuch, and we reminded ourselves of God's warning against idolatry to his people. He says, watch yourselves. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And then he says later in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God understands the temptation of the Israelites and you and me is to fashion a God according to our own liking. And perhaps there are some parallels between Stravinsky's audience and our tendency to create idols and worship them instead of God. You see, you and I also have a, a, a conception of who God should be. And we have kind of this, this God perception. And we have beliefs about how God ought to act, what he ought to do. And when God reveals things about himself that are outside of that perception of what we think God ought to do, our tendency can be to reject it. To say, okay, that truth that God is revealing about himself is is not a truth in line with what I believe God ought to do. And so I'm going to kind of just stick with my perception of who God is. Or maybe there's things that God communicates about himself that we don't understand. And we say, okay, here's kind of my, here's my, logical limits. Here's kind of the the box in which I can think about God, and now this truth that God is revealing about himself is over here. And I, I can't I can't in my finite understanding understand this truth and how this truth relates to this truth. And so because I can't understand it, I'm going to reject it. God re- has revealed it and yet I'm going to reject it and just stick with my own conception of who God is. Or and perhaps this is at the core of, of all of this. We have a perception of God. And even though we might not say it explicitly, we have placed ourselves kind of at the center of that God universe. And all the things that we believe about God are kind of consistent with what we think God should be like. And really, even though we wouldn't say we're the center of God's existence, we kind of operate that way. And at times, God reveals truths to us that violently displace that notion, that violently say, okay, we are not the center of God's universe. We are not the center of human existence. God is the center of his own existence, and God does things for his glory. And when that happens, when truths are revealed that kind of knock us very roughly off the, the throne, we can respond with saying, mm, not going to go there. I'm going to kind of keep my idolatrous conception of God. It's a tendency we all struggle with, particularly when we come to truths like God's judgment and his sovereignty. These are some hard truths to understand. And 
by the end of our time together this morning, you are going to understand them perfectly. Okay, that's not true. But I do hope at least we get through this without a riot breaking out uh, or booing, things like that. I'm very sensitive. Um, Worship, what we see as we come to Scripture, worship is fueled not by us saying, here's who I think God should be and responding to that. Worship is fueled as we encounter God in Scripture and say, this is, this is the God I believe in, and I don't understand him fully, and yet I am in awe of his wonder and glory, a God who exceeds all my abilities to comprehend, to understand. And what we said last week as we began looking at this passage is, is that this was going to be kind of the main thing we we're going to grasp, that God's judgment that God's judgment proclaims gospel truths. God's judgment proclaims gospel truths that will fuel the worship of nations and us. God's judgment proclaims truths about himself that are going to, to fuel the worship of nations and you and me. The truths that are communicated by God and revealed about himself, even in judgment, are, are truths that the nations are going to behold. And these, these gospel truths are going to be truths that the nations behold and then respond to by, by placing their faith and trust in God. And these, these truths that are revealed even in this tough thing of judgment are, are going to be the fuel of future worship. It is a beautiful thing, a thing we cannot fully understand, and yet a thing of beauty nonetheless. And, and I hope that we enjoy thinking through these things together, even if we can't fully understand them. Now, turn to Exodus 6, just kind of remind you where we've been very briefly here. Remember, we began last week in verse 14, and we talked about the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. As we talked about that genealogy, we saw that Moses and Aaron are really connected to the promise God made with Abraham. This is not something new that God is doing. The promise he gave to Abraham of a future land, the land of the Canaanites, where he gave Abraham the the promise of future descendants, these people of Israel. And as he gave Abraham this promise of future blessing and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, all of that, Abraham, all, all that promise to Abraham Moses and Aaron are connected to as well. This whole story is part of God's plan to bless the nations, reveal himself to the nations through the people of Israel, even in this judgment. You come to chapter 7, and remember in chapter 7, it's very clear that God has this all under control. He's revealing his plan to Moses and Aaron before anything takes place. And he says that his purpose here is through these judgments— that the Egyptians, verse 5, shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. This is part of God's plan to reveal himself even to the Egyptians. Then, last week, the first gospel truth we looked at that's revealed in God's judgment, we saw that God's judgment reveals humanity's sin. Uh, Number one, God's judgment reveals humanity's sin. In verse 14 of chapter 7, all the way through uh, chapter 8, verse 19, we saw these first three judgments. And really, all the judgments reveal all of these truths. But it's especially seen here in this first cycle is there's this clear recognition by 
Pharaoh's officials that this is the hand of God. And what we saw is that God's judgment here reveals the false worldview that Pharaoh has about himself, and it reveals his refusal to repent of this worldview. Here's the second thing we see. The second thing we see is that God's judgment reveals God's sovereignty. And we pick this up in verse 20 of chapter 8 and on into chapter 9, verse 12. But really, again, you see this throughout these cycles of judgments. But in this second cycle, you especially see that God is in total and absolute control of what he chooses to do. He's sovereign. He is able to do all his holy will desires. He delivers who he desires to deliver. He punishes with absolute control. Israel's distinguished from Egypt. Now, it's here that a real tension is introduced. And in just just a minute, I want to kind of talk through eight different things to, to help us understand the tension. But let me let me first of all just touch on a couple things. I said I said that God's judgment reveals God's sovereignty, but but how does it how does it do that? How does God's judgment reveal his sovereignty? Let, let me just give you three ways. One, God's sovereignty is revealed through his judgment as we see God destroying the illusion of control. Right? He totally destroys Pharaoh's illusion of control. We talked about that last week. God's able to do all his holy will. Anything that he desires, he does. Pharaoh doesn't want it to happen, who cares? Another way that God's judgment reveals God's sovereignty is not only that he's able to, to destroy the illusion of control, but we also see that God's sovereignty is revealed through his judgment as we see that he has authority even over the human heart. He's sovereign even over the human heart. Verse 3 of chapter 7, he says, before this, any of this takes place, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Chapter 10, the Lord tells Moses, this is in the kind of the, uh, the, the third cycle here. He says, go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart. Verse 20 of chapter 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 27 of chapter 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God has absolute, complete sovereignty even over the human heart. And you say, boy, I do not understand that. Hold on, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes. And you may still not fully understand it, but we'll talk about kind of some guardrails to help us as we think through this truth and respond in worship. Then another way that God's sovereignty is revealed through his judgment, we see God's sovereignty revealed through his judgment as we see God decide to sovereignly save some from judgment. So he destroys the illusion of control. He's sovereign even over the human heart. And in his sovereignty, he graciously decides to save some. And he can do that. Exodus chapter 8, God says, I'm going to set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. There aren't going to be flies there. On the the judgment of the livestock, in Exodus 9, it says the Lord's going to make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, later, after we see God making this distinction, we see that 
and this is so important to understand, God doesn't make this distinction because, okay, here are the Israelites and here are the Egyptians, and he kind of says, well, you know, the Israelites are better than the Egyptians, and so they, they've earned their, their deliverance or their uh, special dispensation from judgment. No, what we see is that God's decision to not judge the Israelites is him sparing them. They also deserve his judgment, yet he spares. So he says in Exodus chapter 12. Now, how do we wrestle with this? How do we understand what's taking place here? This is a very hard thing because as we look through this idea that God's judgment reveals his sovereignty, there can be a temptation to respond in a lot of ways, right? One tendency can be to say, I, I just refuse to accept this idea that God is sovereign because I can't understand it. I, I refuse to accept the idea that God is sovereign because this isn't how I think God ought to act. And there can be, in this, as I think through my own spiritual life, there's been no other issue uh, that has caused me, especially when I was younger, I remember being a 19-year-old struggling with these truths, no other issue that has caused me so much, so much doubt about God. So let me give you, as we think about this truth, that God is sovereign here, and we see him sovereign over judgment, his sovereignty revealed through judgment, let me give you just eight things to think about that I think provide a framework for us dealing with this. And again, um, you won't understand it perfectly. Well, if you do, please see me after the service. I'd love to talk to you. Um, but, but I think it will help us respond in worship at least. Here, and by the way, uh, um, John Frame and Wayne Grudem are two theologians that really kind of helped me think through uh, these, these truths and how to articulate them. Here's the first thing that's important for us to understand. Uh, number one... God does not do anything evil. God does not do anything evil. Remember Abraham. Abraham wrestles with this. In Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah, God has revealed that he's going to bring his judgment, and Abraham can't understand it. In verse 25, he says, you're not going to do that. You wouldn't put the righteous to death with the wicked. You wouldn't let the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so Abraham affirms God's character, and he doesn't understand, okay, how can a God who's just, who's the judge of the whole world, apply his justice in this way? He doesn't understand it, but he affirms this theological truth, God is just, he's the judge of the whole earth. Deuteronomy 32.4 is a beautiful passage. Deuteronomy 32.4, listen to what he says. The rock, he's talking here about God, the rock his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Listen to that again. The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, no sin, just and upright is he. That's a beautiful description of God. He's this, he's this rock, he's the utter foundation of righteousness. And if we're going to understand what is righteous, what do we begin with? We begin with God. And again, as we've said before, it's not like there's this standard of righteousness out there in the universe and God is just really, really good at following it. No, God himself is the standard of righteousness. He's the, the foundation and all our conceptions about righteousness and justice and goodness should be built upon what we understand about him. 
When I was in high school, we had this uh, debate mock trial team, and throughout years there had been this very successful coach, and her motto for her students was, be the standard. That was something that was just kind of drilled into her students. I still have a coffee mug in my cabinet, be the standard that she gave me. And the idea for her was she wanted her students to be so well prepared, to be such people of good character, to have their their arguments so finely honed and well presented that other students look to them to kind of gauge the successfulness of their own ability, be the standard. And God is the standard in a way far beyond any human being could be a standard for another human being. He is the ultimate standard for what is good and righteous and truthful. Isaiah 45, 19, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And James tells us it goes even further than that. Let no one say when he is tempted, this is James 1, 13, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. His, his whole nature is absolute righteousness, and so anything he does is righteousness. He cannot be tempted to act in a way that's not in accordance with his nature, and so he cannot be tempted by evil. If we are going to understand this truth or live rightly in relationship to God, this has to be our starting point. There are a lot of things we're not going to be able to to reconcile together, but if we're to rightly worship God, this must be our, our foundation, our starting point. God does not do anything evil. In fact, we should put it more positively. God is everything righteous. Here's a second truth. We are truly able to make moral decisions and are responsible for them. You read the story of Pharaoh and think, well, well, maybe Pharaoh wasn't truly free. Like maybe he was not free in the sense that he could make a moral decision. And to, to say that would go against what the text tells us. Pharaoh is responsible before God for what he chooses to do. In Zechariah 7.11, it says that people refused to pay attention to God. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears that they might not hear. Verse 12 of Zechariah 7 tells us, that they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of the hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. People chose to be disobedient. Isaiah 66 says the same thing. talks about those who have chosen their own ways, people who did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and, and chose that in which I did not delight. What does that mean? It means that human beings have, of their own volition, they have, they have chosen to do that which is evil, and before God, they are responsible for the evil they have chosen to do. When I, as a parent, sometimes I'm talking to my, my children about something that they have done, and they say, well, yeah, I, I did that, but, but, you know, he, he kind of shoved me first, and, and that's, that's why I responded the way that I did. Yeah, I mean, Dad, you know me. I, I'm your good kid. I, I, you know that I would never want to act this way, but so-and-so did this to me, and I just, you know, I responded. Dad, you and I are on the same page. We both hate this. Oh, as a parent, you don't accept that. You're responsible. You're, you're culpable. 
The same is true of you and me. Yes, God is sovereign, but we are truly able to make moral decisions and are responsible for them. Here's a third truth. The decisions we make are informed by by what's in our hearts. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does that tell us? It tells us that we have behaviors, and our behaviors are influenced by what is in our heart. So here is our heart, and what comes out is our behavior. Behaviors influenced by what's in the heart. What's the problem? The problem is the heart. As Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, as a parent, what's my temptation? As an individual, what's my temptation? My temptation is to focus on behavior. I want to live a right life, and so I focus on my behavior. I need to read my Bible enough. I need to do this enough. I need to do that enough. I need you know, to do these things and focus on my behavior, and, and I, I don't think about the heart. Same is true in my parenting. I have children that aren't always the absolute standard of perfection like God is. So what do I want to do? I want to fix that behavior. In fact, yesterday we had some, some time as a family, and I told the kids, I said, you know what? Sometimes my temptation is when we have an hour of free time, my my temptation is to say, hey, let's just all go sit on the couch and turn on the TV. Uh, Why? Because because it's very easy to to fake relationship when you're not actually having to deal with your relationships. So we kind of started playing some games and some hard attitudes came out. And I apologized. No. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to fake behavior for a time. You can turn on a TV and, man, our family really loves each other when we're not talking. But our ultimate behavior is revealed by what's in our heart. As a parent, so we spent time yesterday just dealing with, with some heart issues. Hey, how do we respond to each other? Why do we sometimes get annoyed with each other? What's, what's going on in our hearts? The decisions we make, we're moral agents. This isn't just saying, well, you know, God made me this way, so I can't really do anything about it. No, we make decisions, and they're influenced by what's in our heart. Here's the fourth thing that I would communicate to you. Even though it's true that God doesn't do anything evil, even though it's true that we're able to make moral decisions and we're responsible for them, and even though it's it's true those decisions are informed by what's in our heart, a fourth thing to think about is that at the same time, God is in control of the human heart and is sovereign over what we choose to do. Now, he does that in a way that doesn't contradict the first three statements, but I don't understand how that can be. I don't understand it, but I affirm it as what God teaches. It's an inescapable truth. God is totally sovereign, and his sovereignty includes our choices. Deuteronomy 2 talks, we mentioned this last week, the king who wouldn't let the people of Israel pass through, and it says that God had hardened his spirit and had made his heart obstinate. 
In 1 Samuel, we see this, this story of Eli talking to his sons and admonishing them, and they refused to listen to their father's admonishment. It says, because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God had, had hardened their hearts. He was sovereign over that process. I don't understand how that works. I don't fully understand that. But as we look at Amos, perhaps part of the answer, perhaps part of the answer, is that God is a God who's sovereign, and he's sovereign not just in the sense that he's, he's here or we're here and God knows the future, but God is sovereign in that we're here and, and here's the future that he's ordained, but he also has an infinite understanding of all potential futures. You know, I've mentioned before that God has had an infinite amount of time to consider every, every moment of your life. So in eternity past, he's had the ability to, to contemplate and be sovereign over every second of your existence. He, he has spent an infinite amount of time on every finite moment of your life. Now, that is mind-blowing, but it goes beyond that. Think about this. God has had an infinite amount of time. You ready for this? God has had an infinite amount of time to consider every finite moment of your potential lives. So not only does he know what's going to happen, but he knows what could have happened in every circumstance and the future that could have arisen from that. And he's had ability to study with an infinite amount of time and have a complete awareness of, of what could have happened in every finite moment of your potential life span. Mind-boggling, right? So what does that mean? It means that God, when a passage like Amos 7, can tell Amos, look, Amos, this is what I'm going to do. And he talks, he shows Amos these locusts and this, this potential plague of locusts that are going to devour the produce. And Amos sees that, and what does Amos do? He responds by pleading with God, God, don't let that happen. And it says the Lord relented. In other words, here's Amos at this moment in time, and God shows him this potential future. And Amos acts, he responds, he he does something, and he prays to God. And God changes Amos's potential future from Amos's perspective, and, and something different happens because Amos acted. So God is sovereign over that, but God is sovereign not just that he has said here's the end, but he's, he's sovereign over the means that he has is, is put in place to accomplish his ends in a way that allows us to make choices, and I don't understand it. But I think that's what Scripture teaches us. Now here's the fifth truth that goes along with this. This means the fact that God is sovereign over the human heart, sovereign what we choose to do, but in a way that doesn't contradict those other things. This means that the same event can have both a divine and a human cause. I think that's what we're seeing here. I mean, Pharaoh chooses to, to harden his heart. He's responsible for it. And at the same time, God is sovereign over it. There's a theological word, concurrence. That, you know, two things concurrently are causing the same event. We see it in Multiple examples in Scripture. Luke chapter 22. 
Jesus says that the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. What does that mean? Jesus says, I'm headed to the cross as it's it's been determined. God has determined this. This is not some event where God is up in heaven going, oh, no, what am I going to do? I did not see this coming. Trying to react to that. God is completely sovereign over that. And so God is responsible in that sense for it. And yet, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined by God, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Who's he talking about there? Judas. Judas is, is responsible for what he's doing, even though God is sovereign over it. Acts chapter 2 says the same thing. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Peter says to the audience here, but you crucified him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. Ephesians 1 talks about our salvation. In Ephesians 1 verse 19, it says, He's talking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. So what does that mean that we believe? It means that we hear the gospel. We hear that, our, that we're sinners. We hear that Jesus Christ, God himself, came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead. We hear that message, and what do we do? We believe. We respond in faith. And yet, What else does Paul say about it? It says it was according to the working of God's great might. God was sovereign over that. Now, here's an illustration maybe you've heard before, and I hope it doesn't muddy the waters. it's It's not a perfect analogy. But maybe it kind of can help you see how God can be sovereign and we can make choices. Think about Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. In Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, Macbeth kills King Duncan. And imagine I were to ask one person, I said, well, who's responsible for King Duncan's death? And that person said, well, Macbeth. Macbeth killed King Duncan. He, Macbeth is responsible for King Duncan's death. And that would be a right answer. But now say, say I asked another person, who is responsible for King Duncan's death? And that person said, well, well, Shakespeare is. Shakespeare wrote the play. Shakespeare is responsible for King Duncan's death. Now, in a sense, both of those statements are true, right? Just because one person said Macbeth, and it's true that Macbeth is responsible for King Duncan's death, it doesn't mean that a person who says King Duncan is, or that Shakespeare is responsible for King Duncan's death is incorrect. Both those statements can be concurrently true. You say, well, does that mean that God is just like this, this playwright who's orchestrated this play and we're just these, these characters in a play that are kind of like robots? And I, I would say, no, no, because God is a far more gifted storyteller than even William Shakespeare. And God has not created these, these robots within the context of a play who simply move, move around fatalistically, but God in his sovereignty in a way that is far deeper than we can imagine has orchestrated a play in which the characters are, are, sub, are subject to his sovereignty and yet are also moral agents who are responsible for their decisions. And you say, Daniel, explain that to me. And I say, we are running short on time. But here's another thing to affirm. Number six, God uses all things to fulfill his purpose and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. This is part of God's plan from the very beginning. He says in 
Exodus 7, he says, Exodus 11, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. In fact, that the passage that we read this morning, Exodus 9, God is just so clear about what he's doing here. He says, um, I'm doing this, this is verse 14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. This is, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And he's saying this not to the Israelites, he's saying this to the nations, he's saying this to Egypt. And then he reminds Pharaoh and his people, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you have been cut off from the earth. God, God uses even evil for his ultimate purpose to glorify his name. So many more passages I have written down here, but that's what we need to understand. Here's the seventh one, seventh truth to think about. Number seven, some truths regarding God's sovereignty and his providence are beyond our ability to understand. And you say, well, that's kind of a cop-out. And I say, no, that's just reality. If you and I, with our finite minds, can construct a God that we have the complete ability to understand and he operates completely as we think he ought to be, that's a very good sign that that's an idolatrous God and not the true God. You know, Paul himself, in that section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11, begins in Romans 9 and says, look, I I have unceasing anguish and sorrow in my heart as I think about my kinsmen. He thinks about the people who are also fellow Israelites who are lost. And then he spends all of Romans 9 saying, yeah, at the same time, I don't understand this, but I know that God is is powerful, and I know that God is good. I know that he's good, and I know that he has the ability to save. And then Romans 10 talks about the gospel, and Romans 11 talks about his hope in this future in which Israel does respond to the gospel. And then the the sum of all this, as as we come to the end of Romans 11 and realize that Paul hasn't answered every question about God's sovereignty, he says this in Romans 11. He says, look, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Paul's like, yeah, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, who can counsel God? Who can say, God, here's what you need to do. Here's a little more info for you. God knows it all perfectly. Last truth that, that will bleed into our last point, eighth thing to think about, if God was not sovereign over the human heart, if this wasn't the case, you and I could not be saved. If God was not sovereign over the human heart, you and I could not be saved. If our salvation depended upon our own heart, just on its own deciding to choose God, we couldn't do it. And so that's this last truth. God's judgment reveals God's salvation. God's judgment reveals God's salvation. So God's judgment, first of all, reveals our need. And then secondly, it reveals his sovereignty. And and those two truths together should cause you and me and the Israelites and the Egyptians and all the nations say, okay, I, I now understand there is nowhere else in the universe for me to turn. 
I'm an Egyptian citizen, and I recognize I cannot turn to Pharaoh for deliverance. I'm a person living here in 2016, and I realize there is no one else that I can turn to for salvation. I recognize the reality of my human condition as I see God's judgment revealing my inadequate worldview, and I see that only God is sovereign, and I understand this crucial truth. There is nowhere else to turn. Only God offers salvation. And the Egyptians, many of them realize that. And the, the plague that we looked at here as we read aloud, what do they do? It says, those who fear the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. They recognized, look, there, there's, there's nowhere else to turn. We need to be obedient to God. God's judgment is so clearly connected to the gospel. The truths that are revealed in judgment are going to be truths that we rejoice in throughout eternity. Only God offers salvation. Only God offers deliverance. God sovereignly grants it as we respond in faith. It's his deal. Think about the Jews in Acts 11. It says they heard that the, the gospel had been received by the Gentiles. They glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. As we think about our salvation, we simply say, Look, it's, it's only God who could provide it, and God's judgment reveals that. We can't understand God fully, we don't understand why he chooses to act the way he does at all times. Sometimes God acts in ways that we don't think he ought to. He acts in ways that continually remind us that that he is God and and we are not. As we think about his judgment, although we can't always understand it, we think about his sovereignty, we don't always comprehend it. All those things point to, to inescapable gospel truths. We're sinners He's sovereign. He alone offers salvation through through faith in his Messiah, through faith in his son, Jesus. And that's what you and I need to respond to. We take the truth that God has revealed to us, respond in faith, placing our trust in Jesus and worshiping him. God's judgment, even God's judgment, proclaims gospel truths that are going to fuel the worship of nations into eternity future and fuel the worship of you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these these truths, these gospel truths about you and your son Jesus. And we, we pray that we respond in faith, looking to you alone for our deliverance, our salvation, our joy, our life. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.